leaving the moon would be easy. And we and Moonanity would have gone out and gone to asteroids or other moons or places that didn't have a lot of gravity because it was similar. But they had seen this beautiful blue planet out there, not very far away, the closest thing. And so the the real pull would have been to try to get to Earth. Welcome to What the If. I am Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker, coming to you once again from Spokane, Washington. That is Washington State in the upper left corner of the lower 48 states of the United States. Yeah, sort of as not lower as you can get and still be in the lower 48. Exactly, exactly. And that is our professor, our guide to the universe, and our safety warden, Matt Stanley. Uh, that's true. I, I have not lost any uh, listeners yet. No one's like been dropped into a neutron star, not recovered. So I'm pretty <laughs> proud of that. Although they're just listeners. So, you know, st- maybe they're just being quiet or maybe they've fallen in. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll listen more carefully. <laughs> And I'm very, very excited about our guest today, Nancy Atkinson. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to be on with you guys today. Long-time listener, first-time caller, so <laughs> looking forward to talking to you. Yes. That's awesome. Thank you. You are a science journalist and an author, and you come to us via Universe Today, the incredible science news and analysis. Giant. Giant, yeah. Yes. You know, it's one of the longest-running space and astronomy news websites out there. It's been around since 1999, which is I I think is amazing. Yep. That is amazing. Fraser is awesome. Fraser Kane, publisher. How long have you been working there? I've been there since 2004. Wow. Yeah. So that's a nice run. Yes. Working with Fraser is great. For those who who may have missed it, we had Fraser Kane, publisher of University Day, on our uh, one of our previous episodes. Uh, replayed one recently, and then the, you can go find the original further back. And Nancy, you have an amazing new book called Eight Years to the Moon in which uh, you described it as you interviewed 40 people you never heard of, but that is, <laughs> <laughs> it's even more exciting than that. Tell us about, what what is that? Yeah, so when my publisher asked me to write a book about the Apollo program, about, you know, this was about two years ago, knowing that the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission was coming up, that was pretty exciting, but it was also daunting because, Apollo is one of the most well-documented events in history. You know, there are hundreds of books, lots of documentaries, you know, popular films, you know, First Man, Apollo 13, who knows, all sorts of, all sorts of things are out there about Apollo. So I knew that I had to do something different 
Um, so one fact that a lot of people don't realize about the Apollo program is that it took the efforts of over 400,000 people. And these are people across the country and around the world to make going to the moon possible. So these are people who not only worked at NASA, but at contractor companies uh, and, and the factories building the spacecraft, actually turning the wrenches on on the nuts and bolts and, you know, and all the various components to make the spacecraft operate and keep the astronauts alive. 400,000 people worked on Apollo. Right. Yeah, that's that's an amazing number. You know, and these were people that worked across the country and around the world to make going to the moon possible. All these uh, people were figuring out how to do all these things that had never been done before. You know, just so many things that were needed that we just didn't have. It's amazing. Somebody's got to make a, a, a collage of all their faces, like a Sgt. Pepper album cover. That would be a pretty serious image. Yeah, you could have, instead of the four Beatles up front, you could have the three astronauts and then behind them, 400,000 faces. That would be awesome. That would be a challenge. A challenge to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, whoever's feeling industrious out there. Yeah, exactly. Now, you said before, there is no list of those 400,000 people, I would imagine. Probably not, because, you know, I tried to get in touch with some of the contractor companies um, to to try to get info from them. And a lot of them or some of them anyway, that I, that I got in touch with, they didn't really have a big listing of, of who all had worked on the project, um, had worked on their specific components and, and things for Apollo. And, you know, I, when I got in touch with one of them, I said, hey, I had gotten in touch with one of your engineers who worked on Apollo. And they said, oh, what's his name? Can you get us in touch with him? <laughs> so um, I would say the, the record keeping of those days is not exemplary. Yeah, so. yeah, okay. that's amazing. That's, but there, yeah, that that would be a fun challenge. Somebody should do a Kickstarter for that. Um, yeah. By the way, I'm yeah, very good at coming up with ideas that will consume your life and make you no money. <laughs> <laughs> Toss those out to anybody. Sounds like you're a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nancy, here's the exciting what the if you have brought us today. And this is a great one. This is a really out there one. And that is, what the if... We lived on the moon and had to send the very first mission to Earth. So, a lot of strange... Things have just happened as we have flipped the universe. We've gone through the glo- through the looking glass. I'm contemplating all of the things that need to change. Can yeah, we so start f- off with a, a lunar JFK who says, "In this decade, we will go to the Earth." Yeah, that yeah, be- yeah. Right. So let's start off with that. And does he have legs? <laughs> in one six gravity, can you just kind of? bounce on little feet or do you need legs how how would how would humans have evolved differently in one six gravity now i'm assuming do, do we have to have some, some air and some water on the moon so we're are we changing that oh well that's an interesting question actually here's our our only rule 
sort of rule, our guideline in what the if, what we we throw out the weird thing, and then we try to keep everything else as close to normal as possible. So the one weird, so so for for this one, let's say we live on the moon somehow. That we we could do many many episodes, obviously about how it w- just how could that be? How could people have evolved on the moon? But for for the sake of this argument, let's just say we live on the moon. We are just like us. Yeah, I guess we have. We must need air and stuff like that. So yeah. okay, so when the the giant impact between Earth and the this yeah. Mars sized thing happened four point five billion years ago, the moon got some additional air and or atmosphere and water as to what it has now, but all, all other things are the same. Yes, that sounds great. Okay. Yeah, actually. All right. Yeah. So we have one sixth gravity, but some air and some and some water and and humanity sprung up on the moon instead of on Earth. Or I guess it would be moonanity. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Actually I'll, I'll just to make it a little uh, more clear. Let's say we live underground, so the air and the water is underground on the moon. All right. Okay. We have okay. to come up to the surface. So, way back in our past, our ancestors poked their head above the surface and died, and then realized <laughs> we need to bring air <laughs> up there. But basically, yeah, we live underground on the moon, and and they did. We spotted. The, I mean, that just that's an amazing story <laughs> of itself. No. What is that thing in the sky? What is that sky? <laughs> what is? Uh, but uh, yeah, so Kennedy has evolved, and he has. He's let, we're we're like us. Okay. Okay. So in one in one idea. Okay. In one way to think about this is that. Space exploration may have happened so much sooner on the moon because so much easier to leave. Ah. You don't need the big, super huge rockets to, to lift off. So I think so the you know the, the lunar module for, for the Apollo program, I think it was about it weighed about at least the top part weighed about 32,000 pounds. And that held two people. And they only needed about a 200-pound thrust engine for that. So that okay. So that it, leaving the moon would be easy, and we and moonanity would have gone out and gone to asteroids or other moons or places that didn't have a lot of gravity because it was similar. But they had seen this beautiful blue planet out there, not very far away the closest thing and so the the real pull would have been to try to get to earth okay That's so, cool. so that was that suggesting was, that so was energetically it's easier for them to get to asteroids than to earth yes yep so okay. much easier so so we would have explored the solar system while looking gazing longingly at earth thinking we need to go there right cuz all we would all we would need is the um, basically the power that the 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 LEM the lunar module used when uh, Armstrong and Aldrin lifted off uh, in uh, from the moon 
that one yeah. one rocket can get you one into rocket. space, right? Okay, but for but the big but is for landing on Earth. But that that poses such a problem because of the atmosphere and the gravity. So, what if you had a capsule-like spacecraft like Apollo, and then you'd have to land in the ocean? You'd already have to have a fleet of rescue ships and aircraft at your disposal, <laughs> like Apollo did. Not only that, you have to figure out a way to get to land if you land in the ocean. So, yeah, uh, so no, okay. no yeah. rescue ships or aircraft or anything to pluck you out of the ocean and bring you to where you want to go. Okay, so we need something that can do a soft landing? Yeah, well, or, so what if you had a space shuttle? Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. Or, yeah. Or maybe not, because you'd need to build a landing strip first. Hmm. Or okay. Well, then you could then you could land in the desert like Edward Air Force Base. Right. I I was thinking that for for the for the moonanity people, there'd be just the notion of the atmosphere of Earth. They wouldn't. They live underground. Let's say they live in like these. They grew up in these lava tubes or whatever the hell, and uh, there was air in there. But like, they don't really have the ability. They don't have even a big surface where there's lots of air for them to have aircraft. They wouldn't even know about that, right? So there have to be a long development process, let's say, that gets uh, gets them using just skimming, I guess, the surface, just skimming the top of the atmosphere of the Earth to learn how to fly. In air, oh yeah, the 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 learning curve for the entry, descent, and landing would be so steep because we would have the moonites would have no concept of thick, luxuriously thick atmosphere to slow you down and also burn up your spacecraft. That's right. So, so they have they have to invent both astronautics and aeronautics all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of how we look at Venus a little bit, like how you know we're like you know what. It's inhospitable. <laughs> it's just we'll send some little arm. We'll try to send little tiny armored craft. Oh, so so that's it. So in other words, l- let's say that they they um, probes is probably s- certainly something they would have. They can build probes, and they would send like ballistic things to Earth, and eventually work up knowledge about how they could eventually build a probe that survives, and then one that can have people in it. Right. And then, but then the atmosphere would, would seem so crushing to the moonites, to yeah. moonanity, because we're not used to that. So we'd have to have like armored spacesuits or something. Another challenge would be the materials. If it, one reason I just thought, let's, let's have the people beginning underground and not having even lived on the surface of the moon is they'd have to fu- they'd have to build <laughs> i mean there's a whole iron age that has to happen or whatever <laughs> yeah. something right. I'm, yeah. somehow kennedy became president <laughs> but right. we're not sure they're past the iron age so just just going into that for instance i'm i'm just curious because lo- thinking of apollo the space program did they have to come th- come up with like all kinds of new materials to build these craft or was it that sort of do we know even i think the materials were there you know the the metals to build the spacecraft of course uh, computers were a whole new 
land and a whole new thing of, you know, taking things that were the size of rooms and being able to fit them inside of a spacecraft. That was that was huge in the 1960s. Communications, I mean, it, it was a big deal in even the mid and late 1960s if you had a live satellite feed from across the world, you know, to do your newscast. And now Apollo threw in the the ginormous task of not only communicating constantly with a spacecraft 240,000 miles away, but then, oh, let's have a, let's have a live broadcast. Yeah. You know, so, so there was that. And so the, the moon, the moonanity would have to figure out all those communications things as well. All right. Yeah. Well, if they've already, if they've already been out exploring asteroids and such, they may have cracked some of those. Okay. That's a, that's a good point. Matt, Matt and Nancy, you are the crew. Okay. Off you go. You've got your, you've got your, uh, I guess you're going to land on. It's interesting because they, I would think maybe they would even find the ocean far more terrifying and difficult to to build to to figure out how to build something to land in instead of the land at least the land they, yeah that's right if they, if they if they have to invent naval engineering as well that's uh that would be tough <laughs> oh, man i mean uh, where, sure so it's hard yeah, yeah so yeah. i would probably want to land on the most moon-like place i could see um okay. because that would be the most familiar right all right so then maybe you would have a space shuttle type thing and it would land at at the Mojave Desert, uh, where Edwards Air Force Base is today, okay. that we don't well, we don't have an Air Force Base there, but at least it's flat and dry and easy to land on. It's interesting. They may speaking of that, they, they may have been to Mars. Just the Mojave Desert <laughs> reminded me of Mars, and considering that the atmosphere on Mars is um, so thin that they may not even have. You know, you can't. As far as I know, I, you can't build a space shuttle. You can build an aircraft-type landing device for Mars. It would have to have, to have an amazing wingspan if if it'd be possible at all. So they could yeah. have, they could have practiced like that. Sure, but okay. But I I just saw I just saw a flaw in that in the space shuttle landing. <laughs> in that you need to be able to launch off Earth again. And right. space shuttle can't do that unless unless help? you yeah. have solid rocket boosters already on the ground, or you've brought them with you, which is incredibly hard. So, okay, space shuttle is lander is off the table, I think. Right. So, Bummer. Yeah. now now you need Jules Verne version of the big full rocket stack. Okay, or. You, the big Saturn V and take it with you to Earth so you can get off Earth again. Mm, that's a that's a tall order. Yeah. Literally. Because, <laughs> yeah, right, yes. because the whole stack would need to have a heat shield, right? And be able to enter Earth's right. atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Earth is so hard. <laughs> that's why no one's been here. That's right. That's <laughs> well, it. that's right. We finally solved the Fermi paradox. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not worth it. Um, no. Yeah, especially when you need to launch off this planet again and return home to the moon. And I think it's because all the other alien uh, races out in the galaxy, they all have John F. Kennedys. And 
all of them introduce that one significant flaw into their proposal, which is we will send a man to the moon and return him safely to the Earth. Yes, to to return him safely to Zyklon B, where we live. (laughs) Zyklon B, by the way, would be a terrible name for a planet. (laughs) Don't Google that. So, yeah, I'm thinking this whole scenario is, uh, yeah, like you said, we've we've solved the Fermi paradox. It might be impossible to go to Earth and launch off it again for people who have less gravity. So, so Moonites might never be able to come to Earth. They'd only be able to look longingly at the beautiful planet. They right. can maybe visit, but possibly never leave. Or it would just be an Earth orbital mission, like the reverse of Apollo 8. Yeah, that's interesting you say might come yeah, and never yeah. leave. Again, maybe that's how we got here, and there Ooh. was no way to get off. <laughs> right. just stuck. So someone didn't think that far ahead. Yeah. Or it may be, you know, you, you the, the, I would think that the Moonites love where they live a lot, and so most of them would be reluctant to go to some radical place like Earth. But they're certainly going to be, you know, the explorers, the dreamers, the homesteaders. Or maybe this actually just occurred to me that um, maybe the Moonites pull uh, uh, Australia and Earth becomes the penal colony for the moon because then you don't have to worry about bringing them back, right? That's a great, that's a great concept. Yeah, that it explains all of it explains a lot about us down here. (laughs) That's brilliant. Okay, so now we, (laughs) prisoners have grown up on the Earth, but they really, they don't have a lot. They only have what they got there. As prisoners will do, they want to escape. So, Escape from Earth. There's a number, there's like a whole series of movies here. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., Escape from Earth. Escape from Earth. So, how... It sounds like at that point they there's no way. Now, but here's what I'm. I must say this is bringing me back to, and actually, the 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 point of this is not just to have fun. That's great. We're having fun, but also to learn things. And I am gaining even more appreciation for the Apollo mission, considering, like you mentioned, just oh, let's have a live broadcast to the moon, even when regular satellite broadcasts were rare. The ambition was incredible. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, just the, you know, the the president issuing this audacious challenge of building things, large rockets that had never been built before, of building spacecraft that could travel distances and withstand reentry from from lunar distances, you know, from, uh, from, you know, not orbital distances and all of the little parts and components that were needed and all of those pieces had to work together and work together perfectly and all the parts had to work perfectly i just yeah looking back at it apollo was just it was a just a remarkable you know so much progress took place in the 1960s. I, I was out at the MIT, uh, what used to be known as the Instrumentation Lab, the the organization that built the Apollo computer. Mm. And the they told me that, yeah, in computing, they'll the 
the common knowledge is if you think you've invented something new, it's probably already been invented and it had been invented in the 60s. Uh, (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Now, who who told... I'm not sure if this was part of your research or not, but I've always wondered, uh, did Kennedy come up with the idea in sort of like somebody somewhere in desperation said, we need to outdo the Russians and the moon is the thing. And so was that Kennedy or who was the first to tell, to suggest this was his reaction and stuff? So the the way it worked is that, so you probably know that it was a space race and in every leg of the race, you know, the race was between the Soviet Union and the United States to show dominance of who who was better and which, you know, was communism better or democracy. And in every leg of the space race, as it started out, the Soviet Union came in first. They had launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik, in, in October of 1957. And then uh, they launched the first human into space, Yuri Gagarin, in April of 1961. And Kennedy just like approached NASA and says, what in the world could we beat the Soviet Union at? There's a group of engineers that were kind of sketching out long-range plans for NASA of places to possibly go. All of this was going to be far off into the future. And one of the ideas was going to the moon. And so when Kennedy said, what could we win? They said, well, we've been looking at this idea to go to the moon and we could maybe beat the Russians going to the moon. And when Kennedy heard that, he said, let's do that. Wow. And there wasn't a lot of details. And who were, I'm guessing, was Werner von Braun one of those Yes, People? I'm sure he was part of that because he had he was such a visionary in wanting to build these large rockets and wanting to build fantastic space stations in Earth orbit and go to the moon and go to Mars. So yeah, he was definitely part of those of, of the early planning and and how this could all be done. One of my favorite things is very dark humor. But he's German, so it, it makes sense. Uh, where his his quip about uh, when somebody said, "Well, you know, you were involved in building the V two rockets that, you know, basically bombed London." You know, what do you think about that? And he said, <laughs> "He said, right craft, wrong planet." <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I, I, I'm paraphrasing that, but it's something basically, yeah, so it's a excellent. A device that just landed on the wrong planet. <laughs> nice. It was so, just so that he was obviously thinking about going to other planets. Right. And so uh, he tells Kennedy, and Kennedy... I think it was... I think for for Kennedy, at first, it was, let's just, let's do this thing, because we can maybe beat the Russians and show a lot of American know-how and stick to and get it done And when the details started coming out of just how monumental this was going to be, I think, you know, there was, in some of the research that I did, it it kind of seemed like Kennedy tried to backtrack a little bit and said, well, maybe this isn't such a great idea and this is going to cost a lot, a lot of money. There's one theory out there that if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, that we wouldn't, you know, if he had stayed alive, that moon thing would have 
uh, kind of faded away and he would have backtracked on it and it would might have never happened. Uh, I mean, that's a that's another what if to look at in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I li- just as just as we were talking about this, that's one the question that occurred to me. It's like it may be that again. I'm really going down a dark humor road today, but <laughs> one of the four hundred thousand people uh, or an adjunct would be uh, what's his name who killed <laughs> Kennedy. You know, I mean, he played a role. He played a role. Uh, let's not include him in the awards in in the on the cover <laughs> of the Sgt. Pepper album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I do feel like that must have played a big. It, it certainly was a major, major boost, emotional boost to keeping that program alive. The other thing was the end of the decade. Was that where did that come from? I think uh, one of the the people that he talked to at NASA could said, well, maybe we could get there in 10 years or so. And Kennedy moved that up to the end of the decade, you know, before this decade is out. And that kind of became the, the, the call, the, the clarion call for this. Okay. We're going to, we're going to do this. And most of the people that I interviewed, they, they said, you know, even when Kennedy died, that didn't really change their thinking on they were going to be able to do this or not because they all said they were fully committed to making this happen and i and i do believe that the only way that the apollo program happened in the timeline that it did was because of the dedication and commitment and passion of the people who not only on the front lines of nasa but behind the scenes because they each said if this thing fails, it's not going to be because of me. I'm going to do everything that I can to make this possible and make it work. And that's just, I mean, the the stories that I heard of, of the hours that they work, 60 to 70 hours a week, six to seven days a week, you know, family life suffered, marriages suffered, many failed, you know, not just the astronauts. These were, these were people who were fully, fully committed to making this happen. I think they just kind of willed it to happen. So we can also uh, blame the increase in the divorce rate on Apollo. One of the yeah. odd, <laughs> one of the odd <laughs> spin-offs. Effects, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. To- I mean, again, I just feel like it was. It was. I can't say it was the only time, because certainly there have been ambitious plans that have been undertaken you know, in, in earlier ages, but uh, a time where so many people committed and the the naysayers or the bean counters or whatever it is you want to call it were kept at bay. I mean, that's truly yeah, amazing. It, you know, it Apollo did have wide support in in Congress, which I think is a huge thing to to, to note, yeah. uh, especially the congressional people who had districts where, you know, like, say, Houston, where they built up this whole new big space center of, you know, it was something that just rose from the ground in a couple of years. All the the buildings, the test facilities, the, you know, bringing all those people in, it was it was enormous. And then, you know, the in Alabama, bringing uh, Huntsville, just all the things that had to be built there. So, 
it was a huge, huge expenditure, but you think of just how much it's influenced, I think, our life today. You know, you know, NASA didn't invent the computer, but the miniaturization was just such a huge Kickstarter in miniaturizing everything, you know, integrated circuits and just giving us the ability to carry around little high-powered computers in our pockets today. I got to think, too, that, that, you know, they were closer, for instance, to World War II than we are now. And that earlier massive mobilization and industrialization, that all that, everything that went into World War II, maybe one of the few things I can think of that would have been bigger, <laughs> considerably bigger, I guess, than the yeah. Apollo mission. The idea of mobilizing the whole country for a giant project like that was feasible, right? Everybody remembered that, doing that in World War II. Whereas, say, today in the United States, I think everybody's kind of like, yeah, we really want to sink all these resources into that. You know, we, we don't have the memory of those kinds of projects anymore. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I could almost see how actually compared to World War II, compared to what America did in World War II, sending three guys to the moon or, you know, a few people to the moon in one rocket may actually have... It certainly was a gigantic technical achievement and administrative and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, when you think about the amount of things that had to be built and invented, I mean, the whole the Manhattan Project, not to mention building better tanks and planes and all that, like the amount of invention and stuff that went on in World War II this seems to make Apollo look smaller. It's int- I've never actually thought about it that way. That's yeah. kind of interesting. So again, another tragedy that uh, plays a role uh, in at least giving us a, a more positive launch forward. The other thing is it truly says something about human nature, right? That had we not been in a race, had we not been able to compare ourselves to the Russians, <laughs> uh, or, or you know, had this sense of having to beat them it sounds like for sure it never would have, like the whole idea was founded on beating this enemy. Yeah, that's that's completely true. It, it was all because of politics. And But I think the really cool thing, though, is that it turned out to be something beyond politics. So when the, when the astronauts returned to the Earth and they went around the world and visited countries to to talk to people about what what they had experienced and what they had done they all said that everyone around the around the world told them we did it and it, it was Americans did it it's that humanity did it we accomplished this long long-held dream of reaching beyond our planet and going to explore explore the solar system and beyond and so I think, and and people look back at uh, at that time and saw what a unifying event it was. Everybody who witnessed it remembers where they were and what they were doing. It's kind of one of those unifying moments. And a lot of times, we unifying moments come in tragedies. You know, when, mm. like, say, nine eleven mm-hmm. kind of galvanized people and brought them together, or when a community experiences a natural disaster, people come together and support them but this this was a unique kind of happy event kind of uh, milestone event that brought people together 
Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me yeah. think, you know, and perhaps deservedly so, but the but the Soviet Union had a terrible public relations problem because they had uh, we we do not think of Sputnik, the first satellite to orbit the Earth. We do not think of that. I mean, we should, and maybe when we take a moment, uh, at least as Americans, to think a little bit more broadly, we can celebrate that as something that humanity achieved. But we don't definitely. It would just see it, it, in our lore. It's it's it was this threat. The same for Yuri Gagarin. I mean, now sort of each year there's a bigger celebration of Yuri's night and whatever. But right. I certainly don't feel like, because of how I grew up. <laughs> and I, I recognize it as being maybe unfair. I don't feel like an incredible warm feeling when I think of Yuri, when Yuri Gagarin went into uh, space as some human achievement, whereas definitely the Apollo missions, like I said, I uh, feel like, yes, it was American, but it really does feel like a, it was something everybody could celebrate. So I'm sure there's a lot of uh, sociology involved in yeah, that. Yeah, imagine. Yeah. So one thing we know now is that the moon the Moonites... The the moon the people of the moon all remember where they were <laughs> when when they first sent first when they sent the first load of prisoners to right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, let's let's and then we can go even further we can go even further and we can imagine that by the time the prisoners figured out everything. Uh, and they fought World War One, and they fought World War Two, <laughs> and they eventually figured out how to get back to the moon. That had the Moonites survived that long, they all would have remembered where they were when Neil Armstrong <laughs> became the first <laughs> ex-con, <laughs> descendant of ex-cons, yes. <laughs> to set foot on the moon. What a day that would have been if somebody if 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 when Armstrong when when uh, Buzz Aldrin and, and uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, you know humans popped out of a cave and said, hey, "Welcome, <laughs> welcome back." That would have been that would be quite yeah. surprised. Yeah, that would have been wonderful. Nancy, your your imagination is is very impressive, and your your quick the the quickness of it also, and and the boldness. You should. I, I have you ever done science fiction? I think. Uh, no, I've never. I've never felt like I was creative enough to make up worlds and stories and stuff. I just love hearing other people's stories and 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 telling about them. So, you know, I I haven't. But uh, maybe you know, maybe this is a a new jumping off point for me here. Yeah, <laughs> for real. No kidding. I mean, I'm not that. It's, it's, there's there's a lot of great ideas in there. You had the book. The book is a nonfiction book, Eight Years to the Moon, came out in time with the 50th anniversary of Apollo. I'm guessing people can find it everywhere books are sold. Yes, everywhere books are sold. A lot of uh, even local bookstores, I'm, I'm finding out, are carrying it. So Awesome. Great. But if you shop online, you can get it at the usual spots. Right on, right on. Are you uh, doing any events related to it? or? Yes, um, I will be in the Chicago area in September. September 5th, I'll be at the Adler Planetarium. Oh, awesome. And, oh, great. Yes. And I'll be at the University of Iowa in October. And other locations, hopefully soon. 
And your website, nancyatkinson.com. People can go there and find out more about you and about your book. And tell me, the, the previous book you did was interesting, too. What was that? Incredible Stories from Space, behind-the-scenes look at the missions changing our view of the cosmos. And in that book, I interviewed about 35 NASA scientists and engineers who work on NASA's robotic missions. So missions like the Mars rovers and the Hubble Space Telescope and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So nine, I featured nine missions and so talked to people of what it's like to to run robots that are going through the solar system and exploring space for us. Fantastic. I am so excited to learn about both of these, by the way. I must get them. Any other social media or or, or other places you'd like people to go? Are you on Twitter, Facebook, etc.? Yes, I'm on Twitter at Nancy underscore A and Instagram. I'm Nancy Atkinson underscore UT. And Facebook... Nancy Atkinson 4. Thank you. And in gratitude, Nancy, I, and I am filled with gratitude, and I know Matt is as well, you are going to be receiving a finger puppet of some great scientist or science fiction character, either one of which may be descended from a prisoner of the moon. Mm-hmm. We'll have to check. Exiled to Earth, who evolved. So that comes from uh, friends of mine at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, whose website is philosophersguild.com. If you're not familiar with them, I just suggest, again, I always say, this is not an ad. This is a personal plug. Uh, they're, they're, they make a lot of hilarious, witty gifts with a science bent and a literature bent and a philosophy bent. I can imagine if I'd been a philosopher. If I had been a philosopher, I certainly would have got caught up more in the humor of it and <laughs> gone down yeah. this road. For all our listeners, you can get a 10% discount from there just for checking it out if you use the coupon code WTIF. And that's just to tell them you love our show and you were happy to find their site. That sounds awesome. I can't wait. Yes. Matt, uh, your book, very much on sale as well. Einstein's War, How Relativity Triumphed Over the Vicious Nationalism of World War I. Available at fine bookstores near you or through a screen. (laughs) A screen near you. Get the book. Read it. Write to us. You can contact us on Twitter at at WhatTheIfShow or on our website, WhatTheIf.com where you can also hear all of our episodes there. We've gotten quite a few letters, as we used to call them, emails, from people saying not only do they enjoy the show, but they have enjoyed your book. Yeah, awesome. That's great. Nancy, I hope you will join us. If you've listened to the show before, if you made it to the end, then you may know how we react when we think about the number of possibilities of things that we could if going forward and we scream the name of the show together would you join us in that ritual oh I would be honored ah excellent now we think about how we are descended from people of the moon I wonder what crimes our 
ancestors committed <laughs> that caused us to deserve to be banished to Earth and in, in, to the bottom of the gravity well of Earth and the pressing, uh, the pressing atmosphere, etc. However, when we think about what <laughs> the insane things may come next week, of which we don't have an idea yet, we look into space, we look at the moon, and we scream, What, what the is?